0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. If you would turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, be in Titus chapter 2 this evening. Continuing a series here about the common faith of a peculiar people. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to read here our passage for the series. Uh, coming from verse 11 through 14, the Word of God says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. This evening I'd like to focus on, once again, the common faith of a peculiar people. And so we've looked at that here in this passage before, but in chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul writes to Titus, his own son, after the common faith. And so for those of us who have trusted Christ by faith, we are part of that common faith, just as Titus and Paul. That common faith is available. It's common because it's available to all men. And so, as part of this common faith, there are things that we all have in common. And so, then we come down to chapter 2 and verse 14. We find that phrase, peculiar people. God's desire in our lives is that He would be able to, have, be able to purify unto Himself a peculiar people. And in our lives, as we live our lives as believers, as we allow God to work out His will in our lives, conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, there are going to be things that should come forth that are peculiar to the believer, different from the world. And so we've looked at one of those things. The first thing we looked at is that the believer is changed. The believer's changed. That's something peculiar from the world. The believer's changed inwardly. And he's changed outwardly in his actions as well. Uh, The second thing we looked at is that a believer is peculiar and that he is zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. And then this evening we're going to look at the believer is peculiar because he is hopeful. The believer is peculiar because he's hopeful. And these are all things that we as believers have in common. So it's not just something that one of us can have or a handful of us can have or this side of the auditorium can have, but not this side. These are things that Paul's writing to Titus about, but God has given us all these things to have in common because as God works in our lives, as, God, as we allow God to purify us individually, there are things that are going to take place in our lives as he shapes us and he gives us things that would set us apart. They're going to be, we're going to be different from the world. And so this evening we're looking at the hopefulness is something, it's a peculiar possession that we can have. Now I want to read you some statistics here that I found this evening, or this afternoon I was looking up some things on hope. and But I want to take you over to Ephesians chapter 12, 2 and verse 12. You can turn over there if you'd like. And I want to read a passage. It's interesting that Paul, as he writes to He's writing to Titus. He writes to the Ephesians. Oftentimes, as he's addressing these different people, they need reminded of where they once were. And I think that that would probably be a common theme so often in our lives. We need reminded of who we once were before Christ. But here's one of those passages, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. And here we find that in verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, we find that as we look around at those who are in the world, they are not part of the common faith. They have not been uh, transformed by the renewing of their mind. They do not have the mind of Christ. They are not peculiar people if they have not trusted Christ by faith. And because of that, they are without hope. And they are without God. We find that in Ephesians 2.12. And so today, this afternoon, I looked up. I looked up on the internet. Good source. But I went to the CDC website. And I found some statistics here on suicides in the United States. And I'm going to read them to you here. Uh, Just thinking about hope or the lack of hope in this world. In 2020, 45,979 people died by suicide in the United States. That is one death every 11 minutes. Also in 2020, 12.2 million adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million adults made a plan, and 1.2 million adults attempted suicide. Now, out of that 45,979 people that did commit suicide, for every suicide death, there are four hospitalizations, from attempts. There are eight emergency department visits related to it, 27 self-reported suicide attempts, and then 275 people who seriously considered it. And so that's just for every one that was actually committed. And so I just wanted to read you that because we live in a world, we live in a society that is without hope. Now there are many different reasons, I'm sure, for those statistics, for the reasons that people took their lives or attempted to. um, No doubt, unfortunately, there were believers that did attempt to do that as well. But we're looking at the hope that God offers. And for a believer to live without hope, ...of eternal life, to live without this hope that God has provided for them. They are living outside of the will of God because God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ... ...a great and glorious hope, which we're going to look at this evening. But for the believer to not take part in possessing that hope, to not actively be possessive of that hope... ...is against the will of God. And so as we look at those around us, we think about being a peculiar people... God's will is that his people live lives that are hopeful. And someone who is living a life that is hopeful, in hope of eternal life, is going to be, even by statistics, peculiar. And so I want us to turn over maybe a page to Titus, and we're going to be chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read a few verses here. As we look at the life and the ministry of Paul and what he has to say about hope. Titus 1 and 1 says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me, according to the commandment of God our savior. Now we see here in this passage verse 2 that Paul is not he's he's a servant of God, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he is living in hope of eternal life. And that is something that should set every believer apart from those who have not trusted Christ by faith. They ought to be living in hope of eternal life. Paul was serving in hope of eternal life. He was an apostle in hope of eternal life. He was living each and every day in hope of eternal life. And just to drill down a little bit here what it means to have hope, I think oftentimes for myself and I think just as a whole in society, we use hope very lightly. Our definition of hope is probably pretty light because I would make a statement like, oh, my football team's playing tonight. I hope that they win. Now, we all know what that means. I'm, I'm expecting, I'm hoping uh, I want my team to win, right? But very light compared to the way that the Apostle Paul uses that word here in the Scriptures. In hope of eternal life, that speaks of an expectation. But not just any expectation, it's an earnest expectation. So Paul is saying, I'm living my life in hope of eternal life. It's not just like, well, I hope my football team wins tonight. Paul's not saying, well, I hope that one day my good works will outweigh my bad and I'll make it into heaven. He's not saying I'm hoping that I might just squeeze by by the seat of my pants and get into heaven and possess eternal life. No, rather Paul's not saying there's a there's a chance here. Paul is saying I have a hope and it is an earnest expectation. It's an earnest expectation. This isn't something Paul's going about his life in doubt of. It is something he's fully expecting and he says he's serving God and he's living his life in hope with an earnest expectation of eternal life. And I would ask you this night, if you would, think of, think of a scale 1 through 10 and figure out, you don't have to tell me, you don't have to raise your hand, where would you fall if you were to rate your earnest expectation, if you were to rate your expectation in eternal life? If you were to rate your hope, would you fall in the 1 through 3? Would you fall 4 through 6? Would you fall 7 through 10? Where would you fall on this, this scale? Because Paul is in earnest expectation. Paul's measurement of his hope is a 10 out of 10. It is the most he could possibly possess. And for the believer to have anything less than the most that they possibly could possess. Because God has given us this earnest expectation. He's given us this eternal hope and eternal life, if you've come to him by faith in Jesus Christ, then it is for us to possess that hope, for us to obtain that hope to its fullest extent. And so for the believer here today, for you and I, we ought to be able to say that we are living our lives to the fullest extent of hope that we possibly can have in hope of eternal life. Paul makes another interesting statement here. As he continues, he says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And so tonight, I want us to look, there are many things that we could look at about hope, but I want us to look at hope's foundation. Our hope's foundation is founded in the character of God. Did you see there? He said, which God that cannot lie. There's a reason God cannot lie. You know, whenever I was 16, I got my first official job and I was working for an orchard and I was out there with all the other workers and pretty soon someone says something and another individual I was working with says, oh, don't say that around Josh, he's a Christian. And then as soon as this person hears him say that, he says, oh, you're a Christian, let me ask you something. I'm like, okay, what are you going to ask me? He says, now God, you know, you're God that you you're a Christian, so you believe in God. Um, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And I'm just like, what kind of a question is this? I'm like he made the world like how much bigger of a rock do you want him to make, you know? But he was asking, can God make a rock bigger than he could pick it up? And you know, as I've, th- it's interesting the things that stick in your mind for 10 years. And I've I just have continually thought about that thought because my first initial thought was that'd be ridiculous. Why would the question is, the question isn't can God do it? The question is, why would God do that? Like, he has a lot bigger, a lot more important things to be worrying about. But really, what it comes down to is God's character. Because you see, there are things that God cannot do because he's constrained by his character. And so the question of the rock is really not can God do it? But rather, God is confined by his character. And you know, we would note that in our own lives. If you're for a believer who has character, but for a believer who has allowed God to work in his life and to conform him into the image of Jesus Christ, that man or woman of character ought to be constrained. There ought to be things that that man or woman cannot do. There ought to be things that come up And maybe in the workplace, someone says, well, don't ask him to do that, or don't expect him to do that, because he's a Christian, he's a man or woman, he or she is a man or woman of character. And you know, people understand that our character hinders us from doing certain things. People understand that our character keeps us from doing certain things. And here we have Paul stating this about Christ, you know, about God, and you know, we We sing the song that God can do anything, anything, anything. But then it goes, God can do anything but fail. Well, God, Paul says, cannot lie. Why not? He can do all things, but his character constrains him from lying. God's character constrains him from lying. And so as we look at our hope, our earnest expectation in eternal life, your hope is directly affected by the character of God. Your hope is directly affected by the character of God. And I want to dig more into this, but think about this just briefly. If your God could lie, what hope would you have? Would you have any hope if you served a God that could lie? You would have no hope. And so the purpose of this evening's message is to really unpackage how the character of God affects our lives how the character of god affects our earnest expectation of eternal life and you know oftentimes i mean even the even in junior church even young children when i was growing up i knew a couple things about god i knew that he was omniscient i knew that he was omnipotent i knew that he was omnipresent i didn't always get the get it all straight and all in order but i knew that those things about god and you know we know those things about god we can rattle them off god knows all things God is all-present. He's everywhere. And we know that God's all-powerful, but how often do we stop and think about how the character of God impacts our lives? How the character of God, specifically tonight, impacts our hope? And so Paul here is making a statement which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. His hope, his earnest expectation of eternal life is directly founded. It's foundation is in the character of God. And so tonight I want to begin, I have four points here, four different characteristics of God that I'd like to look at, and just kind of unpack how the character of God affects our earnest expectation. How the character of God allows us to live a life that is full of hope. How the character of God allows the believer to possess that peculiar earnest expectation of eternal life. Now, you know, we live in a world of change. We live in a world where change is applauded. We live in a world that is, if you're not changing things, then you're not progressing. If you're not changing things, then you're not successful. Now, I like change. It's imp- I, you know, I changed the oil on my car. You know, I, I like, there are some good changes throughout history that have taken place, But when it comes to change that's going on, you know, we live in a world that is so, well, we just looked at the statistics and there is such a lack of hope that in the midst of a world who wants change, in the midst of a world who applauds change, that they need a true hope and that that true hope is only going to come from an unchanging God. And so that's what we're going to look at here. The first thing is that the first characteristic of our God is that He is an unchanging God. Your hope is only as good as its source, and its source is in God's character. And so let's start by looking at our unchanging God. In James 1.17, we're going to do some turning here this evening. James 1.17, the Word of God says this about our unchanging God. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Note there, there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God does not possess a character of variables. Now, in math class, you learn about variables. Your goal is to figure out what X equals, right? But whenever it comes to God's character, there is no variableness. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that whenever I come to the scriptures and I read about this blessed hope that I've been given, that there are no variables. It's a good thing that there's nothing invisible that God is hiding that could change the outcome of my eternal destination, of that eternal life. Whenever we come to Christ by faith, receiving Him, The word of God, Jesus said it in John. He says that they are my fathers and no man can pluck them out of his hand. You know, another thing it says here is neither shadow of turning. That speaks of a heavenly body of the moon. You think about the moon and the planets and they orbit and there is turning. And oftentimes on the moon, we see a shadow. And why is that shadow caused? It's from the turning of the heavenly bodies. That's what that phrase there refers to. And I'm grateful that because we serve a God who does not change God's unchangingness, we don't have shadows of doubt that are cast across our hope. Because God does not change, if God did change, there would be all kinds of shadows of doubt. Think about this. If God was a God that was constantly changing, how could we have any hope? Because He told us that we had eternal life, but if God was a God of change, he could change his mind tomorrow. But he is not a God of change. It says in James, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What a contrast to our lives. We're very variable, are we not? We're constantly changing our minds, all the time. But with God, there is no variableness. And this gives great hope. It gives great hope to our lives. How about Hebrews chapter 13, and verse 8 and 9. Hebrews, James, Hebrews chapter 13. We read some more about our unchanging God. Hebrews 13, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse strange doctrines, for it is A good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Once again, adding stability, adding a foundation, adding something that is firm and sound and solid. My salvation and your salvation is not rested. Our eternal life is not rested upon a changing Savior. God is not going to jeopardize our salvation due to his future actions. And you know what? I'm grateful that I will not jeopardize my salvation either. God is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And note verse 9, Be not carried about with diverse strange doctrines, For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. You know, it's a good thing that our hearts be established. I think about, I was was speaking to some people in the past here a couple weeks, and um, talking to them, and they're not Christians, they're not believers, they've not come to Christ by faith. Their heart is not established. Their heart has nothing to be established in. Yet, for the believer, we have the ability to be established in the Lord Jesus Christ, into in the doctrine in the character of our God who changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we are able to be established in that grace. God's steadfast character allows us to be established in our salvation. And then as we look at God's character and its changelessness, let's turn over to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. And if we ever had a question about God changing who He is, God changing what He has established. He makes a beautiful statement here in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. And this is speaking to the children of Israel. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob... Are not consumed. Think about that. God's changelessness is for our benefit. In this passage, we had the children of Israel. Specifically, we find, he says, Ye sons of Jacob. So the children of Israel, they're not bringing their tithes, they're not bringing their goods, they're not bringing of the first fruits, they're not giving to the Lord. And the Lord says, I, for I am the Lord, and I change not, therefore you're not consumed. If God was a God of change, if God was a God of variableness, he would have consumed them on the spot. He would have, out of his wrath for them, he would have consumed them. But he says, I'm a God who does not change, therefore you're spared. Therefore you are not consumed. God's proven character establishes the truth of John ten twenty nine. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. God's hope is to be ever present in our lives. God doesn't change. Why should our hope change? Our hope should be just as firm, just as established, just as founded as the unchangingness in which it's founded in, and that is God's character. God's character. So I ask you again, I'm going to turn back to Titus here just to kind of get myself back on track. But I ask you again today to consider Where is your hope as far as are you able to say that you're living in hope of eternal life? Or is your hope varying? Is your hope changed from day to day? Does your hope vary according to how you're living your life? Paul here says that the believer is peculiar, ought to be peculiar in the fact that he has hope a hope that the world does not possess, and a hope that can be an earnest expectation. Not only is God unchanging, God's all-powerful. Omnipotent would be the word that we could use there. If we need some proof text for that, we could look at creation and how God spoke the earth and all the creatures into existence. We could speak of Christ's miracles, how God manifested His power through His Son, Jesus Christ, over over nature, uh, raising Lazarus and many others from the dead and healing those that were leprous, the working hand of the Father. God is an all-powerful God. Now, how does this affect our hope? How does this affect how we live our lives in hope of eternal life? Well, I think of 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20. And in that passage, it reads that, Verily... I'm just going to turn there. That way we read the whole thing instead of paraphrasing it there. But 1 Peter 1.18 says this, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. I'm going to call you to remember Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when it talks about it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel as God's plan that was foreordained before the foundation of the earth. God's plan was for Christ to pay the price for our sins before the earth was even founded. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3 speaks of that as well. He says, which God hath promised before the world began. And as Satan, the arch enemy of our salvation, who fell from glory, Ezekiel speaks of that. He fell in sin, fell from glory, and is now standing in opposition of our Savior Jesus Christ. Our all-powerful God is not endangered by this great enemy. Satan is our great enemy. The Bible says that he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's a great deceiver. We find him in the garden at the very beginning, deceiving. And we find him deceiving all the way in Revelation, during the time of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Satan is a deceptive, yet beautiful, but he is the arch enemy of our salvation. Yet that should not affect our hope. It doesn't affect our hope because we find, as Genesis 3 would say, that although the heel of Jesus Christ would be bruised, the serpent's head would be crushed. And so once again, our all-powerful, omnipotent God is overcoming those that would stand in the way of his way of salvation. He can only do that because he's all-powerful. If we served a God who is not all-powerful, you could have no hope. If you served a God... Who is not omnipotent, your hope would have good reason to waver. But in fact, you serve a God who is all-powerful. So our hope stands fast and firm in the foundation of God's omnipotence. Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The omnipotence of God gives us confidence. He says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this thing. Being confident. How confident are you in light of your eternal life? You know, we live in a world today who has trouble obtaining hope for the present, let alone the future. Your coworkers who are without Christ, your neighbors who are without Christ, they have difficulty obtaining hope for now for tomorrow yet the believer has access to an eternal hope that hope that is into eternal life that's not something the lost person can say in fact the lost person has absolute they have the opposite eternal eternity is not a hopeful thing for them it is rather a scary thing something that would cause a lack of hope in their life What a difference. What a peculiarity. They're struggling. The world without Christ is struggling to gain hope for tomorrow, for a temporary time, and then the next day they're going to be struggling to gain hope for the following weeks and months and years. Yet in the midst of the trials and the troubles, you would remember that Paul is often in prison. Paul is often floating in the sea. He's often being beaten. He's often being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Yet he's living a life of earnest expectation. He's not a man who's worried. He's not a man who's faltering in his hope. He's a man who would be greatly peculiar. Because in the midst of all these difficulties of life, while the world around him, while the fellow prisoners that he's in chains beside are trying to find hope for that day, Paul is living in hope of eternal life. And as you and I walk about and go to work and go amongst our neighbors and go amongst our co-workers and our friends who are without Christ and without God in this world, without hope, they're going to be living lives trying to find hope and purpose for the present. And you and I ought to be peculiarly different from them because we ought to be living in hope of eternal life. So that is why whenever you hear your neighbor, whenever you hear your coworker speak of speak of death as a scary thing or or of that well we one day all must face it, you know for the believer facing death, although we we often sing about it in some different hymns as death's chilly waters or the chilly waters of Jordan, but yet Paul speaks of it here. Although it might be chilly waters, he is living in hope of eternal life, because that is just the beginning. You know, it's interesting that our eternal life—we don't just graduate, we don't just pass away from this earth and then obtain eternal life. No, rather, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have everlasting life. It's a present possession. The moment you trusted Christ by faith, you were in possession of this hope of eternal life. You don't have to wait till the day you're on your deathbed to obtain it. You don't have to wait till the day your heart stops beating and your soul is separated from your body to obtain it. No, if you've trusted Christ by faith, you have obtained everlasting life. And you ought to be living in hope of eternal life, for the believer to be living in anything less than a full hope, a full expectation, is less than what God has in mind. We serve an all-powerful God. And because of His all-powerful work upon the cross, you know, if God was not all-powerful, then His work upon the cross would have been insufficient. If God was not all-powerful, then well, we would have found him that he would not have risen from the dead. But God in all his power secured the way of salvation for you and I by making that perfect sacrifice. And so our hope rests upon the omnipotence of God. Let's look at the third thing here. We serve a God who's all-knowing. Now, how does that affect our hope? I'm going to turn over to the Psalms here, Psalm 103, verse 14. And Let's read some things about ourselves here. Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. I'm going to turn over to Psalm 139, verse 2. Read something else about ourselves. Not only are we dust; not only are we feeble in our frame. Psalm one thirty nine, verse two: Thou knowest my down sittings and mine uprisings; thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Not only are we feeble; not only is our frame weak; not only are we dust. We also have down sittings and uprisings, speaking of our variableness, right? And in the midst of this, we serve an all-knowing God. In the midst of our lives here on earth is this frame that is just but dust, is falling apart, is caving in on us and grows older and older each and every day. In the midst of all this, we're living in hope of eternal life. Why? Because we serve an all-knowing God. How does that affect anything? He knoweth our frame. God knows my inability to have eternal life. How about that god who knows all things knew that i was going to need a way of salvation it's a very basic thing but if your god did not know all things about you you would have no hope in eternal life if your god didn't know all your needs where would your hope be resting on a foundation that was crumbling You know, God knows the measure of strength that we need to make it to that day whenever we stand and worship Him and are with Him for all eternity. We serve a God who knows all things. He knows our frame. And as we live, as we're living in hope of eternal life, till one day we see Him face to face, when our faith is made sight, Till that day, we still serve a God who knoweth our frame and is able to give us strength that we need, strength sufficient to the day and the need thereof. If you served a God who was not all-knowing, you would be serving a God that wasn't able to secure your salvation. You know, not only that, God knew the payment that was going to need to be paid for your salvation. What would happen... If God did not know all things, he might have not made the full payment. There might have been some insufficiency there, but no, we serve a God who is all-knowing. Because of that, he has paid the way fully for our salvation, and he helps us each and every day to walk through this world that we live in. How about this? We serve a God that's all-knowing. Titus 1 and verse 3 says this, But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. You know that each and every one of you that's sitting here tonight, if you've trusted Christ by faith somewhere along the lines, you received the gospel. You received it somewhere. Maybe you read it in a gospel track. Maybe you heard it over the radio. Maybe you... Opened your Bible and read the truth of God's word. Maybe you had a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or a parent or a family member who came alongside you and they preached, they proclaimed the word of God to you. They proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed your need for a savior. You know, it's interesting. God knew that you needed to hear that. What was God's plan? God had a plan in place, verse 3, but in due times manifested his word through preaching. God had a plan in place. God knew all the who's. God knew all the when's. God knew all the where's that were going to need to take place. The people in your life that he was going to bring alongside you. Where you would be. He knew the when's, when your heart would be receptive to receive the truth of God's word. God was entirely actively involved, because he was all-knowing, in your salvation. And he had a plan in place. And he's all-knowing. I think of Titus 3 and verse 3, just a page over. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know what else God knew? God knew that we needed hope. God looks out upon humanity. It does not shock him. The statistics that I read on the internet here this evening, those shocked me whenever I saw them. Those numbers were put a shock inside. of. Wow, that's a lot of people without hope. You know that didn't surprise God. God knows all about that. God knows each and every individual who was involved in that statistic. And it was no surprise to God that people, humanity, we need hope. God knew that. In his omniscience, he knew it all. He knows each and every individual. And because he knows all of us, he paid the price, he made the way. He made that gift available to all mankind. We serve an all-knowing God, and because of that, we have a firm foundation. We have an earnest expectation. Now, the fourth point we have here is he's all-present. He's all-present. You say, how does that affect our hope? Let's look here. John chapter 14 and verse 16. John chapter 14 and verse 16 says this, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be able to abide with you forever. God's all present, the comforter of the believer is present with him in every location, in every circumstance. We know that God is all present as a whole, but he's also The working of that out in our lives is he's indwelling within us. He's our comforter. He's comforting us through life. He's giving in Paul's life when Paul was living in chains, whenever he was set out into the deep to float around there, in the cold, in the dark, apart from all else, he had a comforter with him. God was there with him. Specifically, we know that he had the Holy Spirit there with him. And God works through us, works in us. His Holy Spirit indwells within us and helps provide that hope of eternal life in our lives. Romans 1 and verse 10, Paul speaks about his desire to come to the people that are in Rome. Paul's desire was that he could come and be a blessing to them. It says that he could impart unto them some spiritual gift, that he could be a blessing, that his preaching could be a help, that his ministry could be of service to them. Paul's desire was to come and to give those people at Rome hope. But you know that the kind of hope that Paul could give them, of his own self, would only have been temporary. You know, Obviously the the ministry and the impact of Paul's ministry even affects us today we have the scriptures but Paul cannot get up here today and preach to us we have the record of how God used him to inspire or God inspired the words that he penned and so that can be a blessing to us but you know man is only capable of giving a little bit of help Yet our God, who is all present in all scenarios, in all situations, at all times, who's everywhere we go, He gives us great hope, even in the darkest of time. So in Titus here, when we read that we're living in hope of eternal life, I would ask you tonight, are you living in hope of eternal life? Because we are... God doesn't have it set up that we just live our lives and then, you know, we're on our deathbed and then we go to Him for hope in eternal life. That's how it happens. That's how it works out for some people. They're not serious about their walk with the Lord. They're they're living and then one day, smack dab, they come into some circumstance, they're on their deathbed and then they're searching for that hope. That's not God's desire. God's desire is that you and I live in hope of eternal life. Not just for the last hours of our lives, but live presently, continually, in hope of eternal life. So I ask you tonight, are you living in hope of eternal life? Are you? Because God's character has given you a firm foundation. God, who is unchanging, has promised you eternal life. He's given you that great hope. So, where does your hope measure up on that scale? There, I would hope that there, I did it again. I use that word lightly, right? I would hope that this message this evening would be a help as we look to, as we uplift our Savior Jesus Christ, as we uplift God, we show, we look tonight at His character, who He is. And that in and of itself ought to be something that increases our hope. As we look at the fact that God does not change, that increases my hope. As we look at the God who cannot lie, that increases my hope. As I look at the God who is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, that increases my hope and gives me an earnest expectation. Because little finite me and you and all of us who are so small and insignificant as far as our abilities. We serve a God who created the heavens and the earth. We serve a God who knoweth our frame. He realizes that we are dust. He knows our needs. He knows the needs of this whole world to the extent that those statistics that we found, he knows far and beyond into the throughout all of history and the future to come, all those who live this life without hope. God's desire and he made the way so that they could possess that hope. And if you and I are going to live our lives without, if we're going to live in hopelessness of eternal life, if we're going to live as believers not in hope, how can we ever expect to help others come to have that hope as well? These are all. This is something that we all ought to have in common. Just as Paul lived in hope of eternal life, it's not like Paul's an apostle. He has some extra ability to live in hope of eternal life. Paul's ability to live in hope of eternal life is equal to my potential to live in hope of eternal life, and yours, and even the individual who you know who is lost today without hope in this world. Because as Ephesians says, And reminds us that that is where we once were ourselves. So the question here tonight is, are we living in hope of eternal life? Let me have you turn the page here, Titus chapter 2, back to where we first started. In verse 13, and you know when we're living with an earnest expectation of eternal life, when we're living in hope of eternal life, As the Apostle Paul, we can do just this, as it says in verse 13 looking for that blessed hope. You know, one thing that's going to evidence the fact that you're living in hope of eternal life is that you are ready and looking for that eternal life. You know, that is something that's peculiar to the believer. Our hope is to the extent that we are looking for that blessed hope, looking forward to it. You know, we have, uh, I think of whenever I was a child and my birthday was coming up. I think of whenever I was a child, this was like the greatest thing ever, the first day I was going hunting, okay? Absolutely, I was afraid the rapture was going to happen the day before. I was living, unfortunately, I was living in hope of something but we should be just like that today. We should be living in hope of eternal life, looking not for, some, not for a birthday party, not looking forward to the first day of hunting season, rather looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, that's kind of a funny illustration, but I remember how hopeful I was for that day. And perhaps you have days of your life that you just can remember how hopeful you were looking forward to, maybe as a child. You know, things that you were looking forward to with that, even with that childish expectation. It was so great. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. You were looking forward to it. So much more is the blessed hope that we possess as believers. In the midst of a world who has no hope, who in fact dreads eternity so much that they do all that they can to not think about it. They do all that they can to neglect it, yet one day they will have to stand and face it. Yet the believer is to be living, looking for the blessed hope, looking for that eternal life and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Something to look forward to. That is how great our hope in eternal life ought to be. Are you peculiar from the world in that? Are you different in that you are looking for the blessed hope? Because that will show you how you are living in hope of eternal life. Let's pray this evening. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.sbbcpa.org. Until next time.